From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 16, Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth, Eastern Orthodoxy. All right, Taylor. Final episode. Yeah. We've made it. It's been fun. 500 years. <laughs> we have journeyed. Man, it's felt like together. Just, it's felt like just weeks. <laughs> I, I'm curious, what for you, as we've been studying, and I'm putting you on the spot here, what for you has stuck out in, in this 500-year period uh, as maybe being something you had never thought about before or had never seen quite that significant, but now you're coming away from our time in this in this book, maybe sure. thinking differently. And you know I love being put on the spot. <laughs> so my answer now is most likely going to change from, you know, I'll have another answer 15 minutes after we finish recording. Yeah. But right now what I'm thinking about again is the chapter on monks. Okay. Uh, because it really was just one of those things that I saw as a little strange hmm. and a little out there. And never looked a ton into. Um, but the reasoning behind some of those early hermits like Jerome and mm. Benedict, the reason behind some of the beginnings of these monasteries, uh, we've talked a lot about the way that the church and its structure and its organization and the procedures have kind of grown, for better or worse, organically into the things that it was through these different stages. And seeing the emergence of the monks as an organic response to some of that was, I don't know, it was almost like a light bulb moment. I just, I get it. I saw, I could better understand why that happened at the time it did mm. with some of the surrounding context of what was going on in the second and third centuries in the church and in mm. it, largely in the empire in which the church was. Um, so seeing seeing it, seeing the way the church has grown organically, but also some of the reactions to it, right? And, right. and again, this is for better or worse, depending on mm-hmm. your perspective on some of these things. But I just I was really uh, I was really surprised with the way I I came into that chapter on monks versus how I came out of it with a maybe a maybe a deeper appreciation for it. Mm-hmm. What about you? Um, I think for me, it has just affirmed the this feeling that if you are looking to church history in a pursuit of in a, in a, as a how should I put this like in the pursuit of purity, like if you're looking to church history hoping that you're going to find the perfect the way. perfect way or yeah. the, or the quote unquote real church that isn't sullied by sin or um, false teaching or, um, you know, problem people, it just doesn't really exist. Um, it exists in, you know, the, the, there are problems in the first century and and on. And so there is this tendency of wanting to look at, you know, the church in Acts 2 and maybe there's like a six-hour period where right. every it is utopia or yeah. something. Um, but we also forget that they were under persecution and that 
there were people in their midst who had great need. And so believers were having to like sell their possessions and their land so as to provide. Not to mention there were people in their midst who were already lying about it. Absolutely. Like there, were, there was never a point where the church didn't have its problem people. That's right, yeah. Um, and you immediately in the church have ethnic divisions, mm-hmm. um, which will be a part of this last chapter we're covering today. And, and all of those things continue to now. Um, I think there is a tendency, um, particularly if you're someone who has experienced church hurt, um, but but still love Jesus and want to follow Jesus. There's a there's a desire. There's like this this way of thinking where you can go, man. I was just in the wrong model or the wrong church, and and I've got to find the real church, um, and or or the more authentic church or something like that. Um, and I I mean I've been guilty of thinking that way as well because of things I've experienced. Um, but there is a um, there is a no matter you know wherever you go there you are thing mm-hmm. to this it's like that 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 old cliche of even if you find the perfect church you're going to immediately mess it up by being a part of it right um and so yeah just i think this study has reminded me of that truth we are all sinners in need of god's grace um we all struggle to understand i think the deeper um the deeper things of the faith, um, and certainly struggle to live those things out honestly in our daily lives. Um, and the history of the church is a is a history of some people who are very earnest and devoted to the way of Christ, and it is also a history of some people who are definitely not, and yet you know are or are sort sort of wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, and a history of some atrocious things that happen. And, and that will only become more clear, you know, when we eventually get into the next unit of this book down oh, the road, boy. you know? Yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm rambling a little bit, but, no, that, but I, that's, I, um, I, like that. I, I think also... that's my takeaway is, um, and, and certainly as a pastor, you know, it's like I, our church is not perfect and our church isn't without its problems. Sure. And sometimes as a pastor, I can think, um, that that if if there is if there are problems that that somehow we done something wrong or that there's this false thinking of uh, if if we can do everything right then we won't have problems and that's just not the case yeah um, so hopefully um, I don't know hope I, I guess that's encouraging to me on some level you know yeah but, I agree and that's something that I thought about when you were when you pointed out that distinction that. It's it's not necessarily about surrounding ourselves just with the right people or being in the right place. Though certainly, that is a part of it. Mm-hmm. It's more about actually living out the way of Jesus. Yes. And if we're doing that, the other stuff should more or less be a byproduct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but if our goal is, you know, like you said, this place I'm in is just not great. And so if I go find that perfect place, then we're all good. Yeah. When at the end of the at the end of the day, these are places full of humans mm-hmm. who are all flawed and all just bouncing off of each other and, and hurting each other. And if you find your place in Jesus, the rest is a byproduct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that distinction. 
Another thing I would I would say as well is I'm just I'm just reminded of the fact that the presence of persecution does tend to weed out some of the uh, some of the quote unquote chaff in the church. Um, if if there's a real possibility that I'm going to be socially ostracized or on the other end of the spectrum killed, then if I don't really believe in Jesus, then I'm probably not going to be a part of this. Yeah. Um, and even though we see certainly heretical teaching during the age of persecution, um, you also see many, many people who are, uh, who are just um, vibrantly in love with Jesus and who um, are willing to follow him no matter what. Um, and that is... Um, because of the, the period of time that we live in where um, we are not under that kind of persecution, certainly. And we live in a period of time of great material wealth and comfort here in America. Um, it, it does, it does uh, promote this state of just sort of laissez-faire, you know, um, uh, I don't know, nominalism. Sure. Um, and so it's it's this catch-22 of, like, I, I don't necessarily know that we should, like, pray for persecution so as to b- produce more of this true church. Um, but I do think, looking back historically, we can see how, in an age of persecution, the church, the church still thrives. Yeah. Like the church still, and, and, and maybe thrives even more than in a, in a period of comfort. Um, yeah, which is why from now on we're going to have bouncers at the door. You'll, you'll have to fight them to get in starting this Sunday. <laughs> if you can make it in, you're in. <laughs> good luck. Those are good points. All right. Uh, so this last chapter, chapter 16, is on Eastern Orthodoxy, which is... I mean, we haven't talked about it specifically. Um, we've probably talked about Roman Catholicism a little bit more. Yeah. Um, however, from the time of Constantine on, uh, we are sort of swimming in this sea of what ultimately comes to be known as Eastern Orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, because so much of the uh, Christianity of the 300s into the 400s um, is is largely shaped by what's going on in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, as Constantine moves the capital city to Constantinople, as other cities in the east um, become center, like just you know ardent centers of Christianity, um, and and as the bishops in those cities gain power. Um, I mean, I think as we've talked about before, even at the First Church Council of Nicaea. Um, I mean, I, I think a majority of the bishops at that council were from the quote-unquote Eastern Roman Empire. Yeah. And and as we've talked about before, there have always been distinctions between East and West in the same way that there is a distinction between living in Shreveport and living in Portland, right? Like the, those are two very different places with very different cultures um, with different kinds of people that that choose to live in such places and with the roman empire we're talking about an even bigger 
you know, landmass yeah. or a much larger area. And so um, there are huge cultural differences between uh, Rome proper, which is Italy today, right? And um, what is today Turkey, right? Yep. Even as, even if we just think about those two places today, like they're, they're very different. And um, those differences have changed some over the years um, because Islam has become... Uh, such a significant part of um, Turkey today in a way that it wasn't in the 300s, obviously. But anyway, so I, I don't know. I, I, we've been talking around this, I guess, right. a little bit throughout. We've talked a little bit about uh, some of the the worship that ultimately comes to characterize the Eastern Orthodox Church, but we haven't really talked about the Orthodox Church proper. So... Um, where do you want to start in this chapter, Taylor? What what jumped out at you? That's actually that's actually what I was thinking about because this this maybe more than any other chapter is is a little bit out of the normal spectrum of a history book. Hmm. We've more or less been going chronologically, yeah, and we've yeah. we've jumped back a little bit. Like we spent a lot of times in the fourth and fifth centuries looking at different councils and kind of fleshing out these different areas, but. We start this chapter in 1054, mm-hmm. which yeah. is which is when we've jumped the, way ahead. Right, yeah. we've jumped way ahead when the Roman Catholic Church officially excommunicates or cuts off mm-hmm. the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church, mm-hmm. and then once again, like we've done for I don't know three four chapters in a row, we jump back to like when did this all begin? And it started with like you mentioned these these differences were seen. And the earliest ecumenical councils are these councils of the church, yep. which the Eastern Orthodox Church all what they they uh, what did they recognize these seven councils as like kind of the pillars of mm-hmm. yep. the church. So maybe maybe I'm starting by not starting. Where do we start? It's by <laughs> recognizing the enormous time gap between mm. maybe what most people think of as the beginning, quote unquote, of the East, Eastern Orthodox Church. In 1054. In 1054. Yeah, with the the, the Great Schism, as it's called, yeah. And then jumping back, as Shelley does, to see really how it evolved more or less alongside what we now know as Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Because these things, as you mentioned, all played the same or similar roles during these early centuries and during the times that these emperors are calling councils of the church leaders together these ideologies and these differences existed. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was just flesh them out more and more. So Eastern Orthodoxy is one of these ideologies. Right. And so the the way that I think we start maybe is taking the historical approach and then looking at what makes Eastern Orthodoxy different. Yeah. Because historically speaking, these guys are there at all the same councils that Mm-hmm. the other folks were that we just finished talking about mm-hmm. historically speaking it was it was all the same it was all the same uh congregation showing it's, it's, up to these it's one catholic church right like we say in the nicene creed yeah um it's one catholic church coming under the teaching of the like the apostles the apostolic teaching and and so um what we've hit on a little bit already is the fact that that Constantine is the big uh turning point here because Constantine um sets a number of things in motion that ultimately result in the formation of the quote unquote Eastern Orthodox Church um and and I think it's important to recognize that 
Constantine's not trying to start a church or uh, define a particular style of Christianity, or at least I don't think so. I think what Constantine is primarily trying to do is um, utilize this tremendous base of power for his own purposes with, with the Christians, um, and, and he wants to bring them together right, in unification. Unity. There yeah. does seem to be that desire among several of the emperors, Theodosius, uh, Justinian, uh, is mentioned in this chapter, and so that like thus you have all of these church councils. W- what's interesting though um, it, are that these church councils are not necessarily called by the church. They're not necessarily brought together by bishops. They're brought together by emperors, mm-hmm. and so you have this merger of the church and the state. The church comes out of the fringes. Uh, and and becomes united to the state, being the emperor and the Roman Empire itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've talked about historically, the power centers of the empire, the power centers of the state, have changed over time to now, here in chapter 16, the power center is not Rome in Italy. It's, it's New Rome. It's Constantinople in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just naturally changes the dynamic. Um, and then later on, the emperor, the empire gets divided up between, I believe it's the two sons of Justinian. He divides the empire up between both of them. And so it's like yet another separation um, in which this empire, you know, kind of is the, the differences between the East and the West are highlighted. Theodosius. Theodosius. But otherwise, yes. My big. Yeah, so so what we're seeing is, again, jumping to 325 once more with mm-hmm. Constant, Constantine. Mm-hmm. I was going to call him Constantinople. So the, the empire is already very much showing an east-west split. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the church in Rome feeling as though it is losing power and influence as the capital has moved east to mm-hmm. Constantinople. While that church over in Constantinople is starting to amass power and influence. So there is this conflation of church and state. Mm -hmm. And what this chapter gets at is what was going on in the East. Because we've spent a lot of time talking about the West. And again, this is what eventually becomes the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. What's going on in the East? And that is the marriage of church and state in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. So I. I think that does a decent job of covering kind of how the split happens, but then there's also the question of why the split happens, which which may show some of the differences that yeah, Eastern Orthodox. Well, okay, has. so there's there is sort of a geographical split that's just naturally happening. There's sort of an ethnic split or a cultural split that's kind of naturally happening. There is the relationship of the church to the state, and once the pa- centers of power get consolidated in the eastern part of the empire, that obviously creates division between east and west. Um, but then there are also theological differences yes. that begin to arise between the east and the west. And the biggest of these is probably the use of icons, mm-hmm. um, which if you know anything about Eastern Orthodox worship today, that's probably what you know about it, is that icons are a central piece of Orthodox worship. In fact, the the primary like um, focal point in an Orthodox 
um, sanctuary is what's known as the iconostasis. It is this wall of paintings of, of Jesus and Mary and the saints that line sort of the front, if you will, or what we would think of, what Protestants would think of as the stage area, even though it is not a stage. The stage. Um, they, they would think of that as the stage. Um, but but it's, it's a wall of, of icons. Did and you just subtly imply that Protestants have their own icons up there? <laughs> is that what you're getting at? Okay. I'm not trying to... I'm not no. trying to cause problems here. <laughs> okay, back to it. So, so the icons are not not just considered pictures or paintings, though. Mm-hmm. And th- this is where the break comes, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. No. I I mean, for for Eastern Christians, these are uh, windows into heaven, mm-hmm. basically. Um, these icons are are not just paintings, but but somehow. Um, and I and I think the the idea here is that when they when not just when they are painted but when they are blessed or when they are consecrated, they become little glimpses of of heaven. And the idea I, th- I think in, in an Eastern Orthodox um, sanctuary is that all of these icons represent this great host of witnesses. That as the church comes together to worship, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Yeah, and those witnesses are, um, you know, various saints. It is Jesus Himself. Um, it's all of these things. And um, Eastern Christians uh, venerate, and they're careful to use that word. They venerate uh, these icons, meaning they bow to them and kiss them. Um, which is something for Protestant Christians I, and just Western people, I think, in general, something that's off-putting, mm-hmm. um, the idea that you're bowing down to a piece of wood, um, even though an Eastern Christian would, would say, yeah, but I don't think that piece of wood is God. Right. Um, or they would say, well, I'm not worshiping that as God. I'm uh, honoring it as a, you know, a father of the faith. Yeah, and, and you and I fleshed this out a little bit in conversation before recording but the the major question seems to be are these things holy are these things actually sacred mm-hmm. and is what you're doing okay mm-hmm. right that's that's why we get to the point where these icons are not only used in church but now you've got groups that are going after them and trying to destroy them like are that's these right. okay and holy there's a there's a 100 year period of time where you have people who are called iconoclasts who, which if you 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 may be familiar with that word and didn't know that this was the source of that right. word, but the iconoclasts are people who are completely against the use of icons in worship, um, even though interestingly, many of the iconoclasts are all for the use of uh, symbols in worship. They're 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 okay with the cross or they're okay with the symbols of bread and wine, um, and and they're okay on some level with giving honor. To those things, you know, bowing to the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what's interesting to me is that there would be a problem with uh, an image of Jesus, um, but but there's no problem with with an image of the cross, um, sure. which is is just sort of a fascinating distinction there in that iconoclastic controversy. Um, but yeah, you have a period of time here where that becomes the significant issue. And and the church is very divided, even though uh, in, t- in the Roman Catholic Church, even today, um, 
there are icons, right? Right, like and and there are statues of the saints, and there are images of the saints in stained glass and and other things. Um, also, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have relics, which are. I mean, there's literally a period of time where, when saints would die, their bodies would be dismembered. And pieces of their body would be sent out to various churches to be honored. That's in my will, by the way. Is that what you want to... <laughs> that's what's going to be done with you? Dismemberment. Yes. Disperse me. That's why I've donated my organs. <laughs> <laughs> the liver of Weston. Yes. But yeah, okay. So um, there's some other differences too, though. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, not, it's not just in the icons, and it's not just in the fact that... Are these things sacred or holy? Is what we're doing with these icons and these pictures okay? There's there's also the question of, it seems, salvation. Mm-hmm. So Shelley brings this up, and this was a bit new to me. Mm-hmm. So maybe, the, maybe it, it's worth taking a few minutes to go over just the differences between Eastern Orthodoxy and, and what we might be more familiar with in terms of salvation, which is... Sanctification versus theosis. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, man, I, this is this is challenging because I mean we we only have a, a couple minutes left, and so getting into all of this in a way that's satisfying and and maybe answers everybody's questions, I think, will be really challenging. Oh, what a curveball! Sorry. Um, so I like I hesitate to even go into it all. Um, hmm. Like I I don't. Well, okay, I'll take a stab then. Okay. Since we had a conversation about it, yeah. I'll give the short answer of maybe there's not that much of a difference. Mm. And the slightly longer answer of I think I think this is the way I said it before. So, if we consider sanctification to be the Holy Spirit's power working in us to turn us more into a picture of Christ. Yeah. And if an Eastern Orthodox Christian believes theosis to be the removal of sin from the image of God being themselves mm-hmm. by belief and faith in Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. are we more or less talking about the same thing? And our, our, some of this may be splitting hairs and some of this may be oversimplifying a very large issue. But yeah, that. so what, what I'm getting at is this was one of the main differences. And I guess my question is just, should we see it as one? <sighs> Man, I I don't know that I know enough about Eastern Orthodox theology to to answer that in some kind of of a definitive way. I think in the way that Shelley has presented it, um, it sounds almost more like the doctrine of glorification right. to me, or the concept of glorification to me. That that ultimately those who are in Christ are being prepared to spend eternity with Him in His presence. And the only way that we can spend eternity with Him in His presence is if we are uh, purified. Sinless. Like if we right. are, if we are um, you know, made clean. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I, I do think there's an element there. I think the challenge comes when, like, if, if the, there's an understanding that we are, that we are somehow being deified... Mm-hmm. Um, or that we are somehow attaining godlike status, I think. I think that's challenging um, to work through sure. because there is a sense in which, well, we will be with God, and we will be without sin, um, but we won't be God. 
but we won't be God. And and I think the way that I think about that is more akin to the state of like the garden state as opposed to the nature of God himself. So so man was created in the garden to was created in perfection and was created to live in this environment in the presence of God where there was no sin and where there were, you know, where everything was as God would have it be. And and that ultimately what's happening is is we are returning to that place, to that state. There's not some new state of being that borders on uh, godlikeness that we are attaining to. We are um, we are being sort of remade and and restored. Yeah, I like back that. to the original intent. Meaning, if the goal is divinity. Mm-hmm. And that, I know that would be the road. I know Eastern Orthodox Christians aren't claiming that we become God. Sure, right? Um, it's not sort of this, you know. It's certainly not like a Mormon thing where you know we're all going to have our own planet that we're in charge of. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's not what's going on here. But, but, but the language. I think sometimes I, to your point, it's just like, man, are we talking about some of the same things and just using different language? Um, it's often pointed out, and, and Shelley even points it out a little bit, that, man, for, for us Westerners, the Eastern Orthodox way is just so different than our experience, and, and even the way that Eastern Christians think about things is different. Um, it's, 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 I think Shelley says something to the effect of, it's, it's not that we're getting different answers to the question, or the questions, it's that we're asking different questions yeah. all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, we have more, I think, commonality. Protestants have more commonality with Roman Catholics because ultimately the Protestant movement came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And so his point in the chapter is um, we are, uh, by and large, Roman Catholics and Protestant Christians are asking the same questions. They're just arriving at different answers. Right. And yet with with the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's just a very different thing. And for a long time in America, I mean, it was most, – most Americans had no, like, interaction with Orthodoxy. Um, like, it, it came into America as a decidedly ethnic movement, like, as different people groups – uh, immigrated to America, like Orthodoxy came with them. I mean, one of the I believe one of the first um, like entry points for Orthodoxy in America was Alaska, hmm. because because it's right by Russia. Because it's right by Russia, and so many Russians are Orthodox. Yeah. And so as Russians came into Alaska, that was one of the primary entry points for the Orthodox Church into America. Um, and and you know, Shelley wrote this chapter I think originally twenty years ago or so, and. And Orthodoxy's ha- seen a big uh, boost in, I think, popularity in, right. in recent years. He I, mentions there are about 15 churches, and a quick Google on Eastern Orthodoxy reveals about 300 million baptized congregants around the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is, it is of, of, the, I mean, of, of Catholicism right. and Protestantism, I mean, Eastern Orthodoxy is huge. Um, but and and one of the claims that Orthodox Christians make is is that hey we are we are the unchanged church like we are church the church as it was in the first second third century like that that's one of the claims uh, that Orthodoxy is making 
Um, I don't think that that is actually true. Um, I do think you could possibly um, say that it is it is pretty unchanged past the fourth, fifth, sixth century. Um, primarily in terms of its worship, like which is impressive. Yeah, um, but I don't I don't know that you can say um, honestly that. Uh, if you go back to the the 100s and the 200s, that it is the church unchanged since that period of time, yeah. because it's not it's not totally clear. Because the the icons are such a huge part of Orthodox worship. I, I, in in some reading I've done, it doesn't seem entirely clear like when that actually becomes a thing, um, and it's quite possibly after the 200s, after Constantine, um, that those things actually become the case. Um, and it's not true that there are not divisions within orthodoxy today, uh, yeah. and, but most of those divisions are ethnic. You have the Greek Orthodox Church, you have the Antiochian Orthodox Church, you have the Russian Orthodox Church, and um, you know other sort of. Uh, they would not use the word denominations, but right. but other denominations yeah. of that. So, um, obviously, we're not experts on Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, but uh, it is a fascinating place to stop because I think what we see is just the fact that as the church is growing and developing, um, Christians are growing further and further apart and on a variety of fronts, uh, theologically, in terms of how they worship, um, but also geographically as well. Um, and so this will, this will ultimately take us into the Middle Ages um, which is, uh, you know, which some people call the dark ages and, and there's some truth They're to dark. that. Um, yeah. but, but at times that can be a misnomer as well, because there is a great deal of Christian scholarship that takes place during the middle ages. Um, and there's a great deal of beauty that comes out of the Christian church in the middle ages as well. So, okay. uh, I guess let's stop there. Sure. No, no more <laughs> curveballs. I promise. Yeah. No, man. Uh, Taylor, I've enjoyed it. Um, Likewise. Enjoyed getting into all this with you. Looking forward to uh, our next course uh, at some point in the near future where we can dig into uh, the next section of this. And um, thank you guys for being a part of this class and joining us. And we will see you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.